This is your house. These are your neighbor's houses. How many of these neighbors do you know by name? Go ahead, try to name them. If you're like most people these days, you probably only know a few of your neighbors by name. We have garages for our cars, privacy fences for our backyards, and we seem to be perpetually busy. You're doing pretty well if you wave or say hi as you're passing by. But what if we did more? What if we made it a point to learn the names of the people who live on our block? What if we took the time to listen to our neighbors and find out what makes them tick? What if our neighborhoods relied on each other in times of need, whether it be for a cup of flour or a shoulder to cry on? What if Jesus really meant that we should love our actual neighbors? Imagine the difference you could make in your neighborhood if you got to know your neighbors better. Well, I picked up this illustration, actually ordered it before I had any idea what the weather was going to be like today, so it was actually uh, would be a great day to go fly a kite, right? Uh, probably the best day around, but uh, this is the best I could do on a short notice, so excuse the, uh, the, uh, the monkey on the front, all right? So, uh, uh, Braden, come up here and help me real quick. Braden Hudgens. Thanks, man. That's what you get for sitting near the front. You always get to help me when I need somebody on a non-family worship Sunday. All right, I, I, I'm going to have to up the difficulty on this one here. You're going to have to put that together real quick while I talk, okay? Uh, yeah, can you do that? You just put that in there. I think that goes here. Oh, here we go. We'll get the idea. We, we, won't, we won't put it together. How about that? We'll just, we'll just illustrate it. I'll let you do it at your seat, and then afterwards we can go fly it. All right, How that, how's that? All right, let me ask you this, though. If we went to fly this kite outside, what would happen to this kite? Um, Pending the fact that somebody knows what they're doing, right? <laughs> what, what's going to happen? It probably would fly because the wind's blowing. Yeah, it's going to fly because the wind's blowing. Okay, but what if I task you with trying to get this thing up in the air in here? It ain't going to fly? Why? Because there's no air. Right there's no air, right? There, I'm not going to make you try to do that because we know what's going to happen, right? It's going to be failure, right? Yeah. Well, did you know this, spiritually speaking, that someone who tries to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit's power is kind of like flying a kite inside? You know Why? Because we can't do it by ourselves. Thanks for your help, man. Appreciate it. Give him a hand. I want us to think today, truly think and ponder the fact that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And as we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives become alive like a kite would become alive outside in the wind. But I'm afraid that so many of us attempt to live the Christian life based upon our church attendance, based upon just, I do the Christian thing, you know, once a week or every couple of weeks or so, maybe hit a K-group here and there. And that's pretty much the extent of our efforts on living the Christian life. But the Word tells us that there's really only two ways a Christian can live the Christian life. It's we can live by the Spirit or we can live by the flesh. And Scripture talks about that the flesh, if we sow according to the flesh, we're going to reap according to the flesh. And the flesh is our propensity, our our, our desire to do things that just make us feel good and just please us and put us on the basically on the throne of our lives. 
But living according to the Spirit and by the Spirit is a totally different way of living. Living by the Spirit's power when He indwells us and He fills us, then all of a sudden we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the kingdom, we live for God. And so before we look at the Scripture today, I want you to really think about your life. Think about the last week, couple weeks. Think about, are you living through the power of the Spirit? Is your life exhibiting that through your love of people, through your love of the things of God, forgiveness and kindness and seeking Him? Or is your life more indicative of anger and wrath and, and quick temper and malice and those things? Those things are fruit of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, like the kids are talking about today, love, peace, joy. And so those, you look at the fruit of your life, and don't just look at it and say, well, what's the fruit of my life for the last 10 years? Look at the fruit of your life recently. Does it illustrate that you're living according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? I don't want us to walk out of here and attempt to live our lives by our own strength, which is going to be utter failure like trying to fly a kite in this room. We need to live by the Spirit. Ephesians is not going to be my text today, but I'm going to start there. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, and Paul writes this, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another, and now you're going to see the fruit of someone who's filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and the spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. So you see this joy coming out from the fact that they're being led and controlled by the Spirit. Giving thanks, verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it gets real personal and practical here. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so it's not just I'm joyful and I'm happy, but it literally comes down to Community, community life, am I offering forgiveness? Am I submitting to others? Am I living in a way that builds up the community? Or am I pulling or just taking from the community of believers? And so we'll come back to this passage in a bit, but I want to go to my text this morning, which is John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, this is in the English Standard Version of the Bible says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would, were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray and we'll look at this text. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, if we don't build our lives upon your word, we're just wasting our time. If we come in here and talk about the latest current events or politics or the latest things that are happening in life or fun illustrations or stories and we build our lives on that, it's going to fail. It's going to be the house that's built on sand and when the storm comes, it will fall. God, we desire to build our lives upon your word and your truth. And God, you produce the fruit that comes out of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me set the scene for this John chapter 7 passage. God had commanded the Israelites in the Old Testament in, in Leviticus chapter 23 
to keep various feasts and festivals. And this is one of seven feasts that they were to keep each year. Some were multiple days, some being one day. And these feasts were to glorify God, to point people to Christ, to look forward to the day of the coming Messiah, the coming King. And each one of these these festivals and feasts that Leviticus lays out for us, although we as Christians, New Testament Christians, are not obligated to keep these feasts, it is very, very educational and enlightening if we learn about these feasts and learn all the different things, because all of it foreshadows and points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So it, it's incredible to learn, and some of you have, have really put a lot of effort in studying these feasts out, and you know the symbolism that exists. Well, in John chapter 7, uh, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, and this was a celebration to serve as a reminder to Israel of the protection that God had provided when they left the land of Egypt. And during this time, and this is still kept today in Israel and other places, men would make these makeshift huts, and they would dwell in these as temporary remind, or as reminders of the temporary shelters that they stayed in during the time they were in the wilderness. And how this just pictured their total dependence upon God during this time, that if God didn't provide for them each and every day, they would not literally make it. And so this celebration was a time to to remember what God had done, his faithfulness, and also look forward to his future deliverance of his people. And one thing that grew up, which was a ritual that was not part of what Leviticus tells us to keep, told them to keep in the Old Testament, was something called the water ritual, which was a time when they would recall God's provision and it would anticipate the Messiah and it was used by going, the priest and it, with a great procession would go down to a pool, they would draw water, they would carry this water back to the temple and with great celebration and fanfare, they would pour this drink out, this water out as an offering to God. And it's against this backdrop with all this festival and all this pomp and, and all this activity going on that Jesus stood up in the middle of the crowd on the, the, it says, the last and great day of the feast. So it's the climax of this festival. And Jesus stands up and he cries out, if you thirst, if you're thirsty, as we look at this water being poured and you're thinking about thirst and God fulfilling thirst, if you're thirsty, here's what you need to do. You need to come to me and drink. So Jesus was announcing boldly to the people that all of these festivals and all this stuff that you're doing and all this ritual that's happening, all this is pointing to me. I'm the fulfillment of everything that the Feast of the Tabernacle is pointing to. And Jesus made this declaration, and if you know anything about the New Testament and you know anything about Jesus and his relationship with the religious leaders of the day, you can only imagine how angry and upset they would have been for Jesus to interrupt this sacred festival, this sacred ritual, and have the audacity to stand up and announce that he is the source of living water. And Jesus was referring back to words that they were very, very familiar with from Isaiah chapter 55, where the prophet Isaiah writes, Come, all you are thirsty, come to the waters, come to God and drink. And so Jesus steps up and he announces that he is the fulfillment of, of this prophecy. And he says, I'm the water that you are to drink to quench your thirst.
I am the water you're to drink to quench your thirst. As we're in this Love Your Neighbor series and ending it today, I want you to ponder a few things because I think a lot of times when it comes to this idea of sharing Christ, that sometimes we, and myself included, we are very, very intimidated because we think people don't want anything to do with spiritual matters, God, Christianity. And at one level, level that may appear to be the case, but the truth is, as Jesus announces, everyone is spiritually thirsty. Everyone is spiritually thirsty. God has given everyone a longing for himself. Now, it may look like a longing for something else, but it's cloaking the fact that everyone is thirsting for God. In fact, I want you to look at the book of Acts chapter 17. An amazing, amazing interaction between the Apostle Paul as he goes into the city of Athens and he observes all the religious idols and the religious things that are, are, are evident and clear in the city. And he walks through and he ponders these and he comes and he approaches the men who are discussing the matters of the city and they're having these philosophical conversations. And Paul makes an announcement to them because he knows that all of these things that he sees and he looks around and he sees that they're offering these sacrifices to these gods and have all these idols on display is ultimately a search for the one true God. And so he declares in verse 26 and 27, he says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwelling places. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Do you see what Paul is doing here? What he says, he says, God has situated you where you are, where you live, in the country that you reside. He's brought you by his providence to this situation you're in at this moment for a reason. And Paul said, I'm here to declare to you that reason that this searching, this thirsting that you have within you is a search for the living and true God. This yearning, this God compass that he's given you to seek after a greater purpose, something beyond yourself. He says, you're seeking after God. And he says, this God is not just some distant deity. But he says, it's somebody that you can know. He's approachable. He's knowable. And just on a side note, I, I just find it amazing, as, as some of you are going through this contagious class, this, this is great stuff, and Roy may hit on this or maybe already have, but I love Acts 17 and watching Paul interact with the unbelievers there because there's so much we can learn from him. And so just on a side note, one thing that struck me as I was reading this passage is just the compassion he had with people. He wasn't angry. He was compassionate. He respects their quest for spiritual, spirituality, but he clarifies to them what exactly they're looking for. And then also I think we see from him that we should prepare for Sometimes we get insults and rejection, and sometimes people receive the words that we have to say. And so as we scan our neighborhood, as we begin to take our block grid, and we begin to just know the names of people in our neighborhood, I want you to rest in the fact that God has you there on your street by his providence. 
God has put you in your home, in this country, in this city, by his will, for his purposes, if you're a believer. And that's what Paul tells the people in Athens. He says, God sets the boundaries. He determines the geography so that you can find and seek him and know him. And so we learn compassion. We learn that all seeking is ultimately a seeking, a God-driven seeking for God himself, the true God found only in Jesus Christ. And then prepare for insults. Look at verse 32 of Acts 17. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, when he was explaining Jesus, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. So, you might say, Pastor John, I thought you said that everyone's thirsty spiritually, but some people just flat out rejected. Well, I think here's a truth that we learn, that everyone is thirsty spiritually, but everyone is not in touch with that thirst for various reasons. Sometimes it's because they're afraid to admit that they need a God, because all of a sudden, if they admit there's a God and they need a God, and he's personal and he's real, there's accountability in your life that you no longer can just do whatever you want to do and live whatever way you want to live. But scripture says that they can deny that, and in fact, their hearts become, can become so um, calloused that they can reject the revelation that God has provided. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give, him, or give thanks to Him, but they became fruitful in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I love the way the voice says this. It says they were consumed by vain thoughts that poisoned their foolish hearts. So this refusal to recognize, we didn't get here by accident. We didn't just arrive on this planet by happenstance. That there's a God, there's a creator. And I don't know if you saw in the newspaper, I actually didn't even spend much time reading the article, but it was the missing link has been found. You know, and, and the, the link between humans and our ancient ancestors has been found. So, you know, evolution, the chain is, is complete and, 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 and it's, it's evident. We have the facts here, the truth is. And as you read the article, they're even among the scientists. This is so disputed. I mean, they can't settle on it. And, and forgive me, I'm no expert in evolution, but I told my kids, I said, I can't help but to think if mankind, our species, has been around for billions of years and, and we've been evolving as such, why finding one piece of evidence for that would be so startling. It seems like there would be thousands, if not millions, of artifacts and we can find. We can find dinosaurs, so why can't we find people in process? And, and so if you know something that I don't know about that and you want to catch me afterwards and explain that to me, but I just don't get it. I don't understand why it's not just we can find them on archaeological digs whenever we find dinosaurs and, and near dinosaurs or in some layer above dinosaurs. So, so there, God puts within us this thirst and this quest for something greater and something bigger and better, and it's him. Now, back when I was a kid, going to really date myself here, um, in the newspaper came this magazine. It was called Parade Magazine. And some of you may remember this. And for a five or six-year stretch, there was a lady who wrote a little answer, question and answer uh, thing in there, and she was supposedly, she had the highest IQ of anybody in the world, and she would answer some questions that were really serious and deep and other questions that were more, you know, practical and shallow. But uh, one question that she was asked was, what is the reason that we're here? 
And as far as I know, this lady, based on her answer and based upon what I know, she was not a Christian. But I want to read to you her answer from a secular mindset. And you know, this probably would never make it into the newspaper today. It says, I think it depends upon your spiritual beliefs. If you have a religion, it provides the answer. But if you don't believe in a God, the question contradicts your thinking. Having a reason implies having a purpose, which indicates an intelligent being or cognitive power, etc., with intent. That's what people call a God. So if you don't believe a God exists, you can't believe a reason exists. You must settle for assuming we got here through some natural process, and that's that. That's her words, and that's that. All right? I don't know anyone who just wants to think that we're just here, and that's that. Everybody is searching for a deeper purpose, a deeper longing. They know there's something beyond themselves. And in fact, every culture throughout history has sought after something greater and something bigger. And while that's been misplaced, and our job is to show them the true God, as Paul was showing them the true God, the majority of the world believes in a God. Why? Because everyone has a spiritual thirst. Everyone has a spiritual need. So everyone is thirsty, including my neighbors and including your neighbors. And I think that's what's so great about having a class like Contagious Life because we need to know how to respond. Paul, just with such dignity, and he was so winsome in his responses there, and these are the practical things that we learn from a class like this. But back to our text in John chapter 7, Jesus said, everyone's thirsty. And if they're thirsty, what does Jesus say? He invites them and he says, come here. Come to me. Move to me. Come to me and drink. Now, Jesus was literally standing there before them saying, come to me. Today, by faith, we put our trust in the fact that we still move to Jesus, although he's not standing here in front of us. By faith. Hebrews 11, one, uh, 6, I'm sorry, without faith it is impossible to please God. For those who um, come to God must believe that he exists. All right, there's a lot of people who believe he exists, but he rewards those who come seeking to him, who earnestly seek after him. And so faith is how we respond. And I, I'd just like to say this, at, at kind of a side note as well, faith is not belief without evidence. Faith is not just blind leap in the dark. In fact, look what Paul says in verse 31 of chapter 17. Go back there for a minute. He says, For God, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man, Jesus, he has appointed. He, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. So it's not just a spiritual belief. It's not just an inner force. But he says, hey, Jesus was a literal man. Paul says, just alive a few years ago. He died and he rose again. Paul was close. We're a little further away time-wise, but the same is true. Faith, we trust, but there's evidence to the fact that Jesus was who he said he was, and he proved it by raising from the dead. In fact, the Greek word for faith is derived from a verb which means to convince by argument. To convince by argument. And that's what contagious life does. We're, we're equipping you to uh, convinced by argument to help people see that their search, their, their desire for something greater and bigger in this life is never going to be fulfilled in money, materialism, relationships. All of those things fall short. Only God can provide that. And so our faith is confident 
because Jesus is who he says he is, and he does what he says he does. And so I think one of the most important factors that we cannot move past in this whole idea of loving our neighbors is that they have a need, but if we don't have anything to give to them, then what purpose are we going to serve? You see that Jesus wants to be the center of our life, and then we actually have something to give to those who, through providence and circumstances, they come to the place in their life where they're like, I need, I, you know, I'm in crisis. I need something. And God says, hey, I put you here for a purpose, for a reason. But when we are just living our lives for ourselves, we're not going to have a whole lot to offer them. In fact, our, our, this phrase, how much Christ is in your Christianity? How much Christ is in your Christianity? Because here in the South, we can have Christianity that's totally void of Christ, can't we? We really can. We can have a form of religion but denies any kind of power. It denies any kind of power. We're, we're, pretty, we're pretty happy to be limp and, and, and just kind of flopping around, not really doing anything spiritually. We're pretty content with that. But God wants to make our faith alive. And the way our faith is made alive is through Christ. So we must have something to give to thirsty people. In Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? The word of God. By the word of God. We have to love the word of God. We have to be in the word of God. We have to saturate ourselves with the word of God. And look, it's easy when we get here. I think this was probably one of the best days, uh, worship singing-wise, that we've had in a long time. I mean, I was, I was singing at the top of my lungs. Sorry, John Huggins. I was sitting right behind him. And I told Mitch, I go, I hope I have a voice now to preach. But, you know, life isn't lived mostly in these big, grand moments of, uh, of just celebration, the festivals of the Old Testament, the, 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 what we do, our worship services. Life is lived in the mundane, everyday choices, decisions, routine of life. And that is where you and I have to have habits and routines that seek after God even when we don't feel like seeking after God that we pursue God even when it doesn't feel like it. Uh, on my Instagram feed, Desiring God, which is John Piper's uh, website, there was, a, there was a, a, a picture, a post, and it said this, read the Bible even when it feels like eating cardboard, and pray even when it feels like talking to a wall. Why? Because your feelings are not guides. Your feelings cannot be the guide to how you pursue God. You know what feelings are? Feelings are gauges that show us where our passions are. They show us what we really care about. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to be around me very long to see the things that I'm passionate about. Why? Because I get excited. You start talking about running or start talking about exercise. Man, I'm like all into that. I'm talking to you about that. And you have your things that you love and the things that you get excited about. You bring up my wife or my kids, you know, I'm pouring out with emotion, with passion, because I love them. I, you know, it's easy for me to get excited. Those are gauges of what I truly care about. And so your emotions are gauges to what, you really, what really matters to you, but you can't be led by your feelings. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of God. We were discussing and staff meeting either last week or the week before, I threw out this question. I said, what percent of our active church body membership do you think, at least pretty close to daily, 
spend time in God's word very intentionally. And the, the number was ranging between, I think, 15 and 20%, maybe. I was much higher. I'm maybe more optimistic. I was like 50. Uh, you know, I hope I'm right. I believe in you guys, all right? I do. Um, but we, we need to be, every, every believer in here has to be in God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And study after study and survey after survey show that the number one indicator of the strength of someone's discipleship is the time they spend with God every day. In fact, there's a survey done, this study done of a church who was this mega huge church, and they had all these amazing huge programs, and they did this study, are we really making disciples? And they come to find out that the thing that was the best indicator of whether somebody was a disciple was something that they didn't even have to put money into. It was, are people reading their Bibles, or are they spending time with God, or are they seeking God? And so the question is, how much Christ is in your Christianity? How much Christ is in your Christianity? Let me, let me talk to those who maybe are slightly skeptical, or maybe you just, you, know, you just don't really get it, you're here, but you don't really, you're not really on board with it all. I think a lot of people get hung up with this idea of faith because they think it means 100% certainty. If it means 100% certainty on every day, then I'm, I, I, I fail, all right? F for me. I don't always get there. There's days when Satan will whisper in your ear and in my ear, don't believe this stuff. Can you really believe this? Do you really believe there's a God out there? Do you really believe the Bible? Do you really trust the Bible? Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Those times will come. And I think sometimes when we turn inward and we begin to just invest all our time into thinking and, and processing the stuff in our minds that will go crazy because God didn't intend for us to turn inward. He made us to turn upward, to turn to his word, to seek after him. And so if you're looking for scientific certainty, faith, you'll never find that. There's an element of faith that just says, I'm, I'm trusting God. I'm, I'm putting my confidence in Jesus Christ. Does it mean that your, the, the power of your faith has to be perfect? Now, I will say this. Don't make peace with the lies that Satan wants to throw into your mind constantly. Don't make peace with those things. Fight war against that. Be around Christian community have people you can talk to and encourage you, but don't make peace with those lies of Satan. And so Jesus said, come to me and drink. And so for us, we come to Jesus by faith and we drink. We drink, we believe, we trust. Look back at the text. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And look at the result. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's, that's this. That's the kite that's in the breeze. It's in the wind. It's called up in the air. And it's moving. It's dancing. There's life. It's not dead. It's not sitting here on the ground laying there. It's, it's alive. And Jesus said, this, the rivers of living water will flow out of their innermost being if we believe, if we trust Jesus. Believe. Don't let that, that word just fly in your ears and out, your, out, your, out of your mind. 
It means to put your lives into his hand, to, to trust him, to rely upon him, to depend upon him, to give him control of your life. So Jesus said, if, if you thirst, come to me and drink. He who believes, trusts, who puts your life into Jesus' hands. He says, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And we don't have to guess what that means. John tells us what that means. It says, now this he said about the Holy Spirit, about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were, were to receive, as, as, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit is evident, he's there, but the indwelling of the Spirit was temporary. The Spirit came on people, and then he went. There wasn't a permanent dwelling uh, on people. But in the Old Testament book of Joel, we're told a prophecy about the Holy Spirit that one day he'll be poured out on all of God's people in the last days. And that's what Jesus told the disciples. He says, hey, when I leave here, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not just going to abandon you. He said, I will come to you. He says in, in John chapter 14, uh, he, he says, I'm going to leave you a comforter. I'm going to leave you one who will help you and explain to you and teach you truth and guide you. And so this outpouring of the Holy Spirit came after Jesus ascended into heaven on the day of Pentecost. And now everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit permanently within your life. But to go back where I started from the beginning, you can have the Holy Spirit, and Scripture says you can still walk in the flesh. You can still give yourself over to the things of the flesh versus the things of the Spirit. And so you got two options. You can be controlled by, filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, or you can be controlled by the flesh. You can just live life for yourself, doing what you want to do, and, and, and just, if you're truly a believer, I think you're, you keep pushing the Holy Spirit's voice out of your mind, out of your heart, and eventually that voice gets quieter and quieter because you, 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 you stifled him for so long. But you have two choices, and Jesus says, that the Holy Spirit is living water, like a fountain that flows from the heart of the believer, and he brings supernatural life, and he brings life, light to the world. Really quick, I want to show you three examples of what the Holy Spirit does and how he changes us when we walk in the Spirit. Somebody named Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He was in the early church, and in chapter 6, verse 10 of Acts, it says... Uh, this verse isn't on the screen. It says, They couldn't stand the wisdom of Stephen and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so some of you may know the story that he's preaching the gospel to them. He's preaching Jesus to them. And then in verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. What does it say? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, he died. He was stoned to death. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That somebody could be getting hit with large boulders and, and rocks. And what he's thinking about at that time, because he's so full of God, is, Father, forgive them. Just like Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. Stephen, a disciple of Jesus. Father, forgive them. You think, you think it's hard for you to forgive somebody? Imagine Stephen's situation here. He's forgiven them even as they're doing the crime to him. Amazing. And that can only 
be explained by the Holy Spirit. Let's think about the disciples. When Jesus was arrested and taken to be crucified, what did the disciples do? They took off. They ran, scared to death. You had Peter denying Christ, looking from a distance. They were, they were scared. But fast forward just a, a few days later, and let's go to Acts chapter 4. And Peter and, and, and John are standing before many of the same people. Get that? Many of the same exact people who put Jesus on the cross just a few days earlier. And verse 8 in that chapter tells us that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit as he was preaching in this boldness, this supernatural boldness begin to pour through him. In verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The Holy Spirit's power. Supernatural forgiveness. Supernatural boldness. Being full of God. And even though it's referring to literally being with Jesus here in this verse, they were with Jesus, I can't help but to draw the, the connection to the fact that we, when we're with Jesus, that's when the Holy Spirit fills us. When we know Jesus, when we have a relationship with Him that's real and personal. And then one more illustration. Later on in the book of Acts, chapter 16, you have Paul and Silas. They're in the inner dungeon and they're in stockades. They're, they're locked down. And it says, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Wow. They'd been beaten. They'd been thrown into a nasty, nasty dungeon. Yet, what do they have? This supernatural joy that's exploding from their life, even in the midst of the worst of situations. I say that to show you that we can soar. We can be caught up like a kite in the wind if we know Jesus, if we cultivate a relationship with him, and that contagious life will begin to show out of our lives because we love Jesus, we care about him, and it will reveal itself to our neighbors. And so the question is, how are we filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we, how do we get the feeling of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to go back to Ephesians 5 again and finish with what we started with here, where he said, Don't be drunk with wine, for which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So he says, he draws this parallel here. He says, how do you get drunk? I, I, I can honestly say, I don't say this self-righteously, I've never been drunk in my life or even close to drunk, but, but I know how you get drunk, right? You drink a lot, right? You just, you just drink a lot. You keep drinking, and eventually you lose control, and you start to act silly and crazy and stupid, and you begin to be somebody different. And he gives this parallel here. Don't be drunk with wine. That's debauchery. That's, that's, that's a, a, the wrong kind of lifestyle. But he says, be filled with the Spirit. Move to Jesus. Come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. That's where the feeling of the Spirit happens. When we drink and drink of Jesus. And look at the results. The results are songs and hymns, just like them. In, they, they were in prison, Paul and Silas singing and making a no, joyful noise to God in, the, in, in spite of the fact that they were in this condition. And it, it talks about giving thanks and just submitting to one another. 
Now I want to point you back really quickly to Colossians because we looked at this exact chart back when we did Colossians, which was our last series we did before before Christmas series. And I showed you this parallel. I showed you that the top of of it, two different verses, one from Colossians, one from Ephesians, where it says in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then the results are identical to what Ephesians says, to be filled with the Spirit the exact same results happen. And so Paul is giving us a parallel here. It's the same exact same thing. That filling, being filled with the Spirit is the same as letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's pouring your heart out to Jesus. It's spending time with Jesus. It's casting your cares upon Jesus. It's building your life upon Jesus. It's seeking Him with your whole heart. It's spending intentional time not just i get a minute here and there but intentional time sitting at the feet of jesus and then just being aware of his presence throughout the day he fills you up he gives you his word it's controlling your mind you submit to it you listen you truly hear you're like i said that a few weeks back I got an app which reminds me throughout the day on every hour of what I read in my quiet time as just a reminder. It beeps at me. I look at it and clear it because it reminds me of what I read during that time and wanted to apply throughout the day. Because just like you, my mind can quickly turn to a million different things. So drink often and a lot from Jesus. That doesn't sound real theologically impressive does it but it gets the job done drink often and a lot from jesus and that river will flow and then the second one be intentional be intentional with this love your neighbor's idea that's why we gave you that block chart and and this wasn't about going around and knocking on each door of each person this is simply about learning names just memorizing names why is that because What we do in the front yard matters. It's real ministry. When we interact with our neighbors, that's real ministry that's happening there. It's just like someone serving as an elder or somebody who's working in kids' ministry or somebody even going to Africa. Real ministry can happen right in our neighborhood, right in our front yard. And as I told you last week, that is not my default. I have to be intentional. So God fills you up. You have something to give, and then you're intentional about putting yourself in a circle in in relationships where you're going to have an opportunity to speak to those that God has, what? Already put you around out of his providence and put you in a situation for the purpose of his kingdom work. So the application today is just like it was last week. If you've already trashed this or you didn't get one because you weren't here, there's some at the door. Just start putting names of your neighbors into the blocks. I got quite a few question marks here that I still got to figure out and talk to the people and get to know them. And I'm sure you do as well, unless you live way out in the country and there's no neighbors around you, right? Then yours is like, check, I'm good to go, right? So start putting your neighbors' names around. And I, I promise you, you begin to be intentional about just learning their names, and God will take care of the rest. You seek him, you're drinking of Jesus, and you're drinking a lot of Jesus. You may not be the one who says, I see this person pray and accept Christ, but God's using you 
as you make yourself available to him, and he may use you, as Scripture says, that, Apollos, that I watered, but Apollos got the increase, Paul said, that, that you may just give the gospel in a very simple way, and somewhere along the way, God will bring them into his kingdom if he so desires. You do your part. You make yourself available. You just are there, and you know who they are. And this is a challenge for me, and it's a challenge for you. It's a very simple, simple thing. Actually, in times gone by, everybody knew all their neighbors, right? It was just something that you just knew. It's not the case anymore. When we walked out after Hurricane Michael and everybody came out in the streets, I was kind of shocked at how many people I didn't know. Well, they lived there? Really? Oh, I didn't know they lived there. It's a shame, isn't it? God put us there for a reason. He can give the boldness. I need it. I need, I need the boldness. I need the courage. I need the intentionality. And so do you. Let's seek him. Let's share him. Let's pray. Father God, we hear these words and we desire for your spirit to just flow out of us. We want that supernatural forgiveness to those people who have hurt and wronged us. We want that boldness to declare you in front of our neighbors and friends. We want the courage. We want the joy to flow out of our lives. But God, you remind us again and again there's no shortcut. It's a life that's committed to being in your presence, to being with you, sitting with you, talking to you, being real with you, learning from your word, listening to your word, applying your word, building our life upon your truth. And God, for those who have had many, many Sundays, just like today, where they had great intentions of spending time with you and that fizzled out, God, I pray today they'll seek out somebody for accountability and encouragement. God, help them to, to set a routine, get, get a time where they can really, really sit with you and be with you in stillness and put away the distractions of, the li of life and the technology of the day. And God, just sit in your presence and be with you. And then, God, remind us throughout our days, throughout work, throughout the ball fields, throughout everywhere we go, what we're about and why we're here, God. God, we know we fall short, and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our salvation. But God, help us to be motivated because of our love for you and our gratitude for you. And God, out of worship for you because you're worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.